Welcome to episode 259 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Regular listeners know that over the past year, I've published a number of articles about the Alberta Energy Regulator as part of Energy Media's Unethical Oil Investigative Series. Today, I'll be interviewing Carol Baker, who in 2016 wrote a strategic planning document titled Grand Energy Transition for the AER. The plan was adopted by the organization and regularly updated. Then a scandal engulfed AER management. New CEO Lori Pusher was appointed in 2020, and the document disappeared from the AER's website, as did any mention of the global energy transition, which is kind of ironic because around 2020 is when the uh, energy transition really began to accelerate. So I'll be talking to Carol about why she was commissioned to write the plan and how the regulator used it. So welcome to the interview, Carol. Thanks very much, Mark, and I'm happy to be here today. Well, I, you have no idea how excited I am about this because the AER in its current incarnation is not a very transparent organization, very opaque. It's difficult to get information out of it. Nobody inside it wants to talk. I mean, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of former employees and what it thinks and why it thinks that, how it fits into the province's energy strategy is really not clear. So anytime I find someone uh, like yourself who's been involved in planning in particular, I'm very interested. And maybe we could start off with it. And before we get started, actually, I should mention that you're under an agreement. Uh, this document was public. And so you can talk about this, but there may be areas of your work that you can't talk about. Uh, yes, it was public within the AER. Um, it And I will not disclose any items that are confidential. I'll talk about my processes and uh, what it was, what brought about my writing of the grand energy transition. Excellent. And it's important in, in conversations like this where this, the, the guest is uh, restricted by a non-disclosure agreement or some other kind of confidentiality that we establish the guardrails. So we don't want to get you into trouble. We just want the insights that you're able to offer. And uh, so that's uh, that's good to know. Um, Maybe, you know, the place to start with this, Carol, is what's your background in oil and gas? Um, I've worked for almost 40 years in the patch. I worked with Alberta Energy Company back in the 80s. Then I went to Petro-Canada in the 90s and then back to the incarnation, reincarnation of the Alberta Energy in terms of Encana. Um, so I still knew a lot of people from the in Canada or from the Alberta Energy days. So I worked in corporate finance mainly, um, and then the last uh, 11, 12 years at Incan, I was in uh, corporate intelligence or business intelligence. And a lot of that would have been planning, right? Gathering information so that the executive team, the management team, would have the kind of information they needed to make decisions. Yes, I was not in the planning department. We were a separate group, but yes, it was yes. meant to inform them for decision-making. Sure, fair enough. And what kind of work did you do when you went over to the Alberta Energy Regulator? 
Um, I was hired uh, by the AER to write a strategic outlook. That was, they were going to have a new way of doing strategic planning at the AER. So the strategic outlook would be a storyline that would depict a probable scenario. And then um, the regulator could plan for the future, for a new future. So this was very refreshing for me coming from oil and gas because it was looking at scenarios, looking at the future, um, and I was very excited about it. And if you recall back in 2016, it was a year of very disruptive changes. So there was the Paris Accord, there was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a rise in nationalism. So there was Brexit. There was the election in Hungary. There was a lot of social protests in France. Um, there was uh, the, the election of Trump. There was regulatory uncertainty in Canada and also the economic factors. Obviously oil and gas prices were uh, quite low at the time. And there was increasing bankruptcies and uh, a, a lot of additions to the Orphan Well Association. So an aging infrastructure. So they wanted to take a look at what was happening in the world and how could they better plan for it because they understood um, about the energy transition. That, so basically, it. sorry, I was just going to say, I just, uh, the strategy used was um, from the industry, it's using a pestle analysis. So you just examine variables um, that are happening in the world from political, economic, social, et cetera. And then you create a story from there. And they were very keen on uh, pursuing this angle. That, that's an, I'm glad you mentioned the, the pestle methodology because uh, I do talk to modelers all the time. And uh, the, and in fact, yesterday I was interviewing Michael Liebrich, who, when he was head of new energy finance, he told us that uh, his team developed a very, very complex uh, energy system model that the IEA, uh, the International Energy Agency, uh, contracted for some of their services and some of their data and, and their modeling assumptions. And we had a, an interesting chat about which, what assumptions are baked into which models, like the IEA model or the OPEC model, because all models are based on assumptions. You may have, right. you may have data, but if you're forecasting or you're projecting into the future, even if you're doing scenario work, that assumptions underlie the scenarios, right? And right. your three assumptions, your three scenarios were orderly, reversion, and breakthrough. Could you give us right. a, a description of those? Yeah, so orderly was determined to be the most likely scenario. Um, it looked at how the energy industry would transform due to uh, reduced emissions, uh, disruptive technology in both oil and gas as well as renewables, um, and that natural gas would be the future fuel um, for non-renewable energy generation. So yep. that was, in a nutshell, what the orderly scenario was I remember with peak oil in 2040 that was one of the premises yeah we'll get to that in a moment uh, because <laughs> that that's a very hot topic these days I want to talk a little bit about just where I was in 2016 um, we were doing on uh, energy transition reporting 
And, you know, Alberta at that time was just in, it had been plunged into a recession. Uh, prices fell off the, the, the a cliff in late 2014, 2015 and 2016. You already seen two years of very low prices. You know, the, the bust that inevitably followed the boom that was, uh, uh, that ended in late 2014. But what I remember most about that time was, my view of the pace of the global energy transition was determined by the interviews I was doing. And the experts I was talking to at that time were saying, you know, it's going to be slow. We might see the inflection point for the adoption of electric vehicles, say, at 2032, maybe even 2035. And, you know, things are going to be slow. Of course, what we know now is that depending on the region you're talking about, the inflection point for for uh, EVs came in 2020, and I remember in 2017 when I you know sort of talking off camera with experts and going, "Do you feel the th ground shifting? You know, it feels like things are speeding up." And then 2018, people were saying, "You know, I think you're right. I mean, we are kind of feeling that." And then two years later, it was like the dam burst. And and there was, you know, be, between the pandemic and then 2022, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, all of those forces that have been building through the period you're talking about accelerated. And now we, we see them much more plainly than you were able to see them in like 2015, 2016, when you were working on this document. Is that a fair way to describe yep. where you were? Yep, that's fair. Um, and Basically, it was just me as well. Okay, you were <laughs> so, in the planning department. <laughs> I was. <laughs> so there was information I'm sure that I was missing, but the story was evident then. In fact, with COVID, I, in one of my updates, said that, uh, you know, we're, we might be entering the breakthrough scenario because uh, demand fell off uh, the cliff for oil during COVID. And what what if this was a step change? You just don't know, but you look for signposts of what might happen. Now I might say we're, we're in the reversion scenario <laughs> in Alberta, but not globally. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, I my almost my entire career at this point is spent interviewing global experts who talk about how quickly things are accelerating in Europe and, and China and then what's going on in the United States. And then coming back to Alberta and waving my flag and going, you know, this is really serious. You guys are under an existential threat. You've got to, and then everybody goes, no, no, no. OPEC said we're okay. We're good. You know? And I think that is the heart of the, re the reversion model that you're talking about is that Alberta yeah. And I'll, I'll just briefly summarize this because regular listeners have heard me say this before, that when you're an incumbent, and remember, Alberta is the eighth largest oil producer in the world. I mean, it is the very definition of incumbent. So when you're an incumbent and your market is disrupted, then you have basically three options. You can you can pivot to a new business model. And you see uh, the Danish oil and gas company that eventually became Orsted went from oil and gas to the, you know, the world's largest wind supplier. You can re-engineer your existing business model, and you saw lots of the European companies, uh, oil companies trying to do that over the last decade or so, or you can double down on the status quo. And in response to disruption, 
the particular particularly the the big oil companies in Alberta have doubled down on the status quo. They've 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 pulled back in. They've cut back on any energy transition investments they might have made in you know in oil in sorry in wind and solar and startups that kind of thing. And they've said, nope, we think that OPEC says that we're going to have oil demand growth out to 2045 and then a, a, a long plateau and a slow decline. That's the model we think is going to predominate, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And 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 so that's how they're they're behaving. Is that what you foresaw in the uh, the reversion scenario that you wrote? And, and have I accurately described what's going on in Alberta? Um, I was looking at a bigger picture that the Paris Accord would be thrown out and uh, um, regulations, the regulatory system would be completely minimized. I was thinking more globally, but it's actually happening locally. Yeah, that's the irony. And the uh, but some of the things you're talking about are actually part of OPEC's World Oil Outlook 2045, which is kind of the modeling that under undergirds all of their slow transition narratives. And uh, if you look in that document, it says, you know, no, you know, citizens are getting tired of paying the high cost, the high taxes of supporting climate policies. Citizens are ready to go back to oil and gas. They, they, they're not going to. Uh, citizens in the OECD, the develop the emerge, uh, sorry, the developed economies will embrace electrification and renewables. But they said in the non-OECD countries, which is like vast majority of the con of, of countries in the world, they're going to stick to oil and gas, and they're going to kind of double down on on oil and gas. And that seems to be OPEC's view of the transition seems to be consistent with your re uh, reversion, reversion scenario. Yeah, I believed in my orderly transition that third world countries would not bother with oil and gas and skip immediately to renewables. Uh, that was my assumption. It's not a bad assumption. I mean, we saw that with telecommunications, right? I mean, exactly. You know, and, and that would have been the model that you would have been looking at at the time. Yeah. And 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 there's still plenty of evidence. Uh, because, the, you know, this is a long process and it's not clear yet where Africa's going, where where Pakistan and Bangladesh and some of the other Asian countries, uh, what's going to happen in India is a huge country. I mean, uh, there's still a lot, plenty of uncertainty about whether or not the those countries are going to hang on to fossil fuels or whether they will, in fact, uh, with the help of China and, and uh, the U.S. and, and some of these uh, transition funds, whether they will leapfrog ahead into the the new clean energy technology, still a, a question mark, I I, I would say, um, but not the orderly transition uh, scenario that you had envisioned. Right. Okay, let's talk about how this was used because I'm fascinated by the fact that the management team at the AER understood that there was a, an energy transition going on, understood that Alberta would be affected by it and could be severely affected by it, depending on which scenario actually unfolded, and wanted to be ahead of the curve in planning for it. Can you just relate, you know, to the extent that you're able, some of the conversations or the tone of some of the conversations that were taking place back in 2015, 2016? Yeah, um, 
Well, I was hired in 2016, and uh, I would have to say that it was a very refreshing change in that uh, everyone from my level above was on board. And I present, I didn't present, but I wrote my report. It was vetted by the executives. Um, and then it was presented to the executives by my VP. And uh, they embraced it. And from that strategic outlook, um, then they developed a strategic plan that would um, help the regs position the regulator for regulatory excellence in what was going to be a changing world. Uh, you and don't I have can't to... give specifics on that um, because that was not released publicly, but uh, they were all on board and it was really a refreshing change. We also did a SWOT analysis, so strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. But it wasn't the typical SWOT because they did it both internally and externally. And to me, that was uh, very telling that they actually wanted to do better. So when you I don't that know that it, they've done it since. <laughs> uh, not that I've heard, and I probably would have heard. Um, when you say they did the SWOT analysis externally, does that mean they went out and consulted with oil and gas organizations yeah. like and and companies it was uh the different stakeholders so oil and gas indigenous landowners so it was all done with the various stakeholders external stakeholders see i'm i'm fascinated by this because i spend a lot of time uh paying attention to the politics of energy and the narratives around energy how we talk about energy and in tw late 2015, the Rachel Notley, who was the NDP Premier of Alberta at the time, released the the climate plan, uh, and the uh, you know Alberta was seen as a leader in climate policies at that time. And while there was a lot of criticism of Notley uh, and her policies from the industry, there was still a fair amount of support for this approach to climate, and and people were there seemed to be some optimism. There was some momentum behind that, that point of view. And I can see when you go out and, you know, if the AER went out into the field and talked to those various stakeholders, that they might get a fairly positive response uh, to the to your document. And is was that in fact the case? I assume it was. Um, I don't recall them actually going back with the completed document. This was all uh, part of the process for the SWOT analysis was used for the planning stage because you obviously want to minimize your threats and work on your strengths and uh, be aware of your uh, the opportunities. So, but that was shared back with, I believe, the stakeholders, but I don't recall exactly. Oh, I see. I got it. So they they might have talked about it in general terms, but maybe and probably didn't share the document itself. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's got my it. understanding the document was never shared externally. And let's talk about, you know, how things changed at the AER over those years, because and, and you don't have to, to comment on this because I this probably is goes beyond your or gets you into trouble if you do. But uh, I'll say this. I have been told by multiple, multiple people that the CEO at the time, Jim Ellis, 
was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, he was a very good CEO and a very good administrator, highly respected in the industry and in the uh, in the regulator itself, government. I, you know, I, I talked to the Ken King, the the minister who set up the AER, had nothing but good things to say about Ellis. On and on and on. The problem is, I Ellis would agree got with that. A, yeah, I think that was a common view. And Ellis got himself into trouble. He set up a company outside. We won't go into the details of it, but he set up a company that looked like he was trying to benefit from some from technology that the AER had developed. You know, develop uh, benefit personally, and and eventually there was a big scandal, 2018, 2019, and and eventually, you know, Ellis was moved out, and some of his VPs were moved out. New management team, new government in 2019, and then Pusher comes in and in 2020 with a new board and and some new and some new executives. So in that turmoil around 2018, 2019, you know, that's when your document still would have been a an active planning document for the organization, right? It was initially. Yeah. Right. Um, so they were still using it as a plan, but by 20 20 it was not being used now that's interesting uh can you shed any insight into why it it's they ceased using it well i should say that i don't know that they ceased using it but the strategy department ceased to exist so um in its form that wrote the document and monitored all the changes to the document and whether or not strategies or scenarios were shifting. So perhaps they did use it and I'm just not aware. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and, and I just, uh, you know, as a journalist, I'll be going to the, uh, to the AER and asking for official comment. I mean, you know, if, if they can provide an interview about the, the, the transition document and cover some of the ground we've covered here, but from their point of view, see if we can get yeah. some insights into it. Um, frankly, I'm not optimistic. The In my experience, the AER is not forthcoming with interviews. Uh, at the very best that you'll get out of them is is maybe some, you know, they'll provide you with written responses to, uh, to question, email questions, uh, which is very unsatisfying for we nosy journalists. But I want to talk now about peak oil demand because you mentioned prior, before that there was there are arguments for a 2030 peak, uh, peak a 2040 peak or a 2050 peak, and you thought the 2040 was the most likely. Could you explain why? Back in 2016, um, I researched it with the IEA, with Wood McKenzie, with CIRA, with the EIA, and internally with the AER forecast. Uh, because they had an economics department, uh, ST98, I believe it is, that does their forecasting. And in compiling them, the consensus seemed to be 2040. There were some 2050s. Um, and the question was never if the energy transition is happening, it's just when. So I went with the consensus because their um, information that backed up their plans seemed to resonate with me. And I, I believe that, and it worked with the internal forecast at the time. Yeah. You kind of, you have your own uh, uh, methodology that it's not totally dissimilar to mine as a journalist. Uh, I'm not a modeler. I'm not an economist. I can't 
you know, sit down with uh, spreadsheets and computers and figure this stuff out. But when I, I do read a lot of modeling, you know, the uh, all of the the major like the IEA and and OPEC and and Bloomberg NEF and BP and so on, and what I do is I interview, uh, uh, you know, probably a couple of hundred, maybe 250 global energy experts outside from outside of Canada every year. Plus I read studies, you know, the IEA comes out with various stuff. And so, and then, and then data, you know, there's always a, a lot of data floating around that I get my hands on. And then I compare it to the modeling. And I say, based on what I know today, what, you know, sort of the, what I've, all the information that I've gathered and ingested, which of these scenarios seems most likely to me? And and it's a judgment call. You know, I can yep. see where somebody else could say, you know, either, in fact, I've interviewed plenty of, of experts who are either more pessimistic, they think that, you know, it's going to peak later, or they're more optimistic and they think it's going to peak this, this demand. And you can make an argument for any of those. Yep. All I can say is based on on my information I have at hand, it it lines up most likely with this particular scenario. So I think today for me, I would have to say that I think the IEA's announced policy scenario, the APS, is the most likely. And that calls for the peak oil demand in 2030 and then a fairly uh, just a little tiny uh, plateau and then very, fairly steep decline uh, beginning in the early 2030s. But I have to say, and the reason I asked you about 2040 is things, as, and as you mentioned earlier, things change so much. Perceptions, perceptions change so much in such a short period of time that, you know, people went from being, oh, yeah, to, you know, 2040, now 2030 would be a, yeah. is, is that a fair thing to say in, in that, is that, you know, kind of volatile perceptions change quickly? I would agree. Yeah. And I think there were certain events that triggered it. Um, Tesla started coming out with cars that were economic to the general population. They could afford to buy them, but whereas before it was just uh, very rich people who could afford the Teslas, they came out with completely new models. But I think COVID was the big one because people had to stay home. They didn't travel. They didn't commute. And all of a sudden, the world went, hey, wait a minute, maybe we don't need this and we can learn to do things differently. So you, you just look for step changes. And that was one of the things for me that said, you know what, maybe it's 2030. One of the. And I, I, I reading your summary that you provided, which had been made public, so you're not. Uh, giving me anything that would get you in tr into trouble. But I remember... Well, it was my thoughts. It was not a public document, by the way. It oh, was okay. public on the internet, but it was... Those were just my thoughts, which are just my thoughts. It was no AER information at all. Okay, got, got, I understand. Um, the As late as 2019... I was getting really rude emails and uh, messages on social media from people who were saying things like, you can spell it with a capital E, you can spell it with a capital T, that doesn't make it uh, an energy transition a real thing. It's a, it's just a fiction. It's, you know, ginned up by the 
green pieces of the world on and on and on. These are people in, from Alberta who are, you know, associated with or, or in the industry. And so I'm given that kind that, that uh, those messages, uh, conversations, and sometimes diatribes that I was the, the uh, subject of or the target of, um, I'm kind of surprised that there was a cohort within the AER that, that accepted the energy transition and peak oil demand, and that there must have been in out in their stakeholders, you know, oil companies and, and other stakeholders, uh, people who did as well. And so uh, that kind of changes my view a little bit, you know, that Alberta is at least, a, you know, years ago was a, a little bit, at, you know, at least up with the curve, not behind the curve as it seems to be now. I was uh, pleasantly surprised, having come from oil and gas, that they were open to the idea of an energy transition, that the world was changing for Alberta and uh, in general. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised. When I worked at the regulator, I would meet others from the industry, and some of them still denied it. Uh, but I was also happy that Suncor embraced it. And they were, until recently, moving towards a path path of energy transition. I I would I would agree with that because I've said in, in a number of uh, formats that um, uh, Suncor was leading uh, the Alberta oil and gas response to the energy transition, and then pulled back its horns and is now uh, sort of sticking to its knitting. Uh, you know, around the oil sands yep. and and so on. So it's it doesn't see itself. It's redefined its role vis-a-vis -vis the energy transition. It's no longer a leader, which is the way it wanted to be seen up until Rich Kruger, the current CEO, was appointed last year. Um. So, where I, I guess what I'm struggling with here, Carol, is the the role that the uh, regulator saw for itself in a changing oil and gas industry uh, did it define itself as an, a, a regulator that had to aid oil and gas companies that would come under pressure from from declining markets you know if, if oil peaks and then falls prices are going to fall and some companies aren't going to make it or did they see because we all know now, and I certainly know in great detail, that Alberta has a, hundreds of billions of dollars of environmental liabilities, orphan wells and tailings ponds and pipelines and facilities that are unfunded. And was there any concern in the regulator at that time that, oh, oh hang on a second, if we're going to see some decline here uh, sooner rather than later, how are we going to get all of those unfunded liabilities paid for? Was that conversation... Can you, was that it there? Was not, can you, no, that was not part of my conversation, but um, my report did discuss the increasing potential for liabilities, um, abandoned wells. And one of the thoughts that I and others had was using ge geothermal. It hadn't been really bantered about in Alberta yet, but that would be a perfect way. Like, how can you repurpose something? If you know it's coming down, that there's going to be even more of them, how can you repurpose them? Right. And I think we know, I, I remember those conversations. There was a lot of optimism around taking an existing well and repurposing it for geothermal. The problem, as we discovered, 
uh, was that not very many of those wells are are anywhere near a pocket of hot water underground. <laughs> uh, that was a problem. And the other is that the well bore that's required for a geothermal well uh, turns out to be very different in most cases than a well bore for a gas well or an oil well. And so that that prevents uh, them from being repurposed. Um, but I remember the conversation. I think you're quite right. I mean, those were that was being talked about. Um, I think it's fair to say that they realized there was potential on the horizon and what can we do? Did we get to that point of what we can do? I don't think so, but they were thinking about it. Right. And that it's fascinating. I always I wish that I, I had the opportunity to be a fly on the wall uh, during uh, some of these board meetings or some of the executive management meetings around the oil companies and maybe even in, in the regulator, because their public comments frequently don't accord with the evidence you see in the data and at the global level. And, you know, there's a big disconnect. And my takeaway from one of my takeaways from our conversation is that that disconnect in 2016, 2018 wasn't as wide as it is now. I would say there was a genuine interest in making the regulator a better regulator and one for the future and recognizing that the future was changing, that the world was moving away from oil and gas. I, this is getting off topic just a little bit, and and we'll see maybe uh, see, get your opinion if if you if you can, um, and that is, uh, you know, I've interviewed a number of people uh, who uh, work with the regulator and worked in the regulator, and I've had a couple of them push back a little bit on this idea that the AER is captured, and the uh, Professor Jason. Um, oh goodness, what's his last name? Doesn't matter. University of New Brunswick. I've got a, an interview with him on on our uh, on our podcast, and he said that the AER was a classic example of regulatory capture, right from stem to stern. But then I had Dr. Monique Dubay, who used to be, you know, the the was she was the original science officer that the AEI, AER hired, I think, in 2017, and she she says, you know, Markham, that's not fair. People don't go to work every day thinking about how they want to enrich the oil and gas companies. They go to work every day thinking about how can we effectively implement the regulations we have with the resources we have and 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 solve the problems that we have. And and I just thought I'd get your I would agree that. with that. I would agree with that. Everyone there that I met goes to work to do the best they possibly can as a, a regulator of oil and gas. They do not view themselves as giving things away. Um, that's my experience. They're very um, intelligent, um, hardworking individuals. Um, yeah, I, that's I, my I, take on them. I, I've heard, I've heard, you know, scientists say many times that some of the world's best subject matter experts uh, are PhDs that work at the uh, at the regulator. Yep, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. And I and I I criticize the AER enough that I take every opportunity I can to point this out because it you know I'm sure for for people who are fans of the regulator it seems really unfair that to, to, to get dumped them on them all the time but there's a really odd paradox here 
that I I still don't have an answer for, which is if you look at the data, and I've been through the data on suspended and inactive wells and how many, you know, the percentage of, of uh, marginal wells in the 155,000 producing wells that are going to be inactive soon. All of these are de facto orphan wells. They aren't going anywhere. They're never going to be back in production. Somebody has to reclaim them, right? They have to plug them and, yep. they, and they have to remediate the soil and do all the things that are necessary to reclaim those well sites. It's, it's a big number. It's a huge number. And then that doesn't even take into account 444,000 kilometers of pipeline and 90,000 facilities like gas processing plants. There is a lot of iron out there on the, you know, Alberta, uh, on the, the fields yeah. of Alberta that, and there's no money set aside to, re, to recoup. So on the one hand, we've got these dedicated professionals working in the AER, doing their very best to, to make the whole thing work and, and to fulfill their mandate under the Responsible Energy Development Act. That's the legislation. And then there are some mm -hmm. other sort of complementary legislations and regulations. They're doing their very best while things are falling apart out in the field. And, and I don't know, because you're a veteran of the industry, are, are there any insights you can provide as to how that happened? Um. Well, I can't recall which premier did it, but uh, moving out the uh, time frame for drilling to keep a well going um, in Texas, it was three years. Don't drill, you lose it. And then it was moved to, and I forget the number exactly, something like 10 years plus. And I was told at a company one time that spend a dollar on it and you got another 10 years. You never have to worry about it. You know what? Uh, I I can actually answer your question, and okay. and the answer is no premier. Yeah, uh, okay. the, Alberta is one of the few oil and gas jurisdictions where there is no timeline for reclaiming wells. You can literally, as long as it's you, as long as you've abandoned it, which means in in Alberta speak. Oh, this is on producing though, on producing it. So it doesn't even get to that stage yet. Okay, so you haven't, it's not a suspended well? No, you just, um, actually, good question. It was my understanding that you didn't have to actually, you could spend a dollar and keep that license going for another 10 years. Okay, so it, practically, uh, it, it comes down to the same thing. You've got a well that should be reclaimed, uh, the money should have been spent by the oil company and it didn't have to do it because it spent the dollar and, and just got another decade. And so there's an asset out in the field that should have right. been reclaimed. That that's right. the, that's the point. And that's how yes. you wind up in 2020. This is a mind boggling number in 2020, there were 97,000 suspended and inactive wells, which are de facto orphan wells. And then the, the number is now down to 80,000 because a bunch of them came back on when prices recovered in 2021, I guess. And, and so yeah. it's not, but still 80,000 is a lot. That's a big number, a right? It's a very big number. <laughs> yeah. And, and to the, to this government's credit, they're, they're talking about it and bringing in a few uh, measures to try to get that number down. We'll see how successful that is, but, but I still search, I still am searching for the explanation 
for that paradox where everybody works hard and is ethical and, and is doing their very best. And yet out in the field, the numbers are just going crazy and the unfunded liabilities are growing at exponential rates. And it, and it's just crazy. I, I still don't understand that. And I appreciate you giving it a try. Well, look, yeah, um, I, I can speculate, but I'm I know nothing official like it. It just seems I understand your your quandary like and it all comes down to money. Doesn't it always doesn't it always <laughs> every time? Well, look, um, to, to wrap up our conversation, Carol, um, we had there was a brief moment in time. Uh, around when you were hired to put together a, an energy transition strategy document, the regulator embraced it, incorporated it into its operations and planning at the executive level, which is very important. And then it kind of, you know, 2020-ish, it just kind of frittered away. It just faded and and seems to have to no longer be part of the, at, at the very time, the energy transition accelerated, another quandary. Uh, we'll, we've got more than more than a few of those. Um, how do we? How should we see this from your point of view? If you had to explain to a reader how they should perceive that, you know, switching from the orderly scenario to the reversion scenario, how would you explain it? Um, I would say it's political will. There. You know, we've seen our government cancel renewable contracts. There just isn't the political will to understand that the world is moving on. In my view, the the world will move on without Alberta. Oh. <laughs> and I just hope that uh, we can actually diversify our economy before that happens. Um, Non-Canadian and maybe even non Albertan Canadians will maybe not understand the gravity of what Carol just said, that the, the, uh, the world will move on without Alberta. The world doesn't care. Markets don't care. If you can't keep up and you don't invest in, in the, the new economy that's emerging, you get left behind. We've seen it many times over in through the course of history. That's heresy in Alberta. Yep. If if you went if you said that in the in the Calgary Petroleum Club, you would be tarred and feathered and run out on a rail and dumped on Fourth Avenue. Absolutely. Oh dear. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't <laughs> agree with me and you might have a counter argument. Okay, well, this I guess we're just gonna have to agree on that. Carol, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Really, thank you very much for this. Thanks so much, Markham.